Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 896. Farah Mansour on the Bleep October Surprise, Part 1. This is being recorded on March 24th of the year 2016. Against the background of a number of things, including uh, our discussions with Peter Lavenda, uh, done in 2015 about the use of wep- what he termed weaponized Islam as a vehicle for effecting uh, initially during the Cold War anti-communism and then ultimately after the Cold War for the uh, breakup, actually again, of anti-communism of uh, the former Yugoslavia and then being used against Russia and also against China. We have seen the very Muslim fundamentalist forces, primarily grouped around the Muslim Brotherhood, used as proxy warriors in what I have termed the Earth Island, that stretch of land from the Straits of Gibraltar all the way across Europe, most of the Middle East, Russia, China, and India. That stretch of land, again, that geopoliticians have termed the Earth Island or the World Island, comprises most of the Earth's land mass, has most of the Earth's population, controlling that, and also most of the world's natural resources. Controlling that uh, enables uh, a, an entity to control the world. Right across the middle of that land mass is a large stretch of Muslim population. The Muslim Brotherhood, in addition to being Islamic fundamentalist, is a long-time exponent of corporatist economics that jives beautifully with the neoliberal or free market or laissez-faire economic theory that is much endeared to the transnational corporations and their related national security, political, and intelligence uh, elites. Uh, For that reason, again, weaponized Islam, like other forms of weaponized religion, has been used as a strategic vehicle by the U.S. and by transnational corporations using a gambit that was originally formulated by Germany in World War I and used to an even greater extent by Germany in World War II. Uh, As I am speaking, the world is once again uh, reeling from a set of bombings in Europe by ISIS, connected elements. ISIS is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Its leader was a, quote, ex, unquote, note the quotes, member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And indeed, the Brotherhood and ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda-related elements, Hamas and other Islamic terrorists, are very closely allied. Indeed, in the bloodbath in Syria, uh, the demarcation points between ISIS and al-Qaeda-related elements like the al-Nusra Front, uh, pan-Turkist elements, are very loose and often they collaborate with one another. As well, at this point in 2016, we have seen a deal cut to attenuate Iran's nuclear development capabilities 
and uh, in turn we have seen uh, various uh, manifestations of political theater and political conflict uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. By way of gaining some historical perspective, not only on the development uh, and ascension of Iranian Shiite Islamic fundamentalism, but also on the use of Islamic fundamentalism as a vehicle for covert operation abroad, and in turn, the utilization of that covert operation as a vehicle for domestic covert operation here in the U.S., what we're going to be doing in this and the next several programs is to be revisiting the research of Farah, F-A-R-A, Mansour, M-A-N-S-O-O-R. Farah is a member of the Iranian resistance and a genuine hero, and a man who has developed something I have labeled the Deep October Surprise. Normally, the term October Surprise is used to apply, is applied, I should say, to a an alleged deal between the Reagan-Bush campaign in 1979 and 80 to withhold the U.S. hostages or have the U.S. hostages taken from the American embassy in Tehran, Iran, until after Jimmy Carter's humiliation and consequent election defeat were assured. Farah has developed a very important and compelling body of research indicating that basically there was no October surprise as such. What I have termed the deep October surprise encompasses the seizing of the hostages from the U.S. Embassy, and beyond that, it develops the timeline of events that resulted in that all the way back to the mid-1970s. According to Farah, and he has developed some very compelling research uh, at great risk to himself, the ascension of the Khomeini forces in Iran was actually uh, the direct outgrowth of a covert operation by the George Bush faction of the CIA. The intent was to place an anti-communist government in Iran, not only to prevent the ascension of the Tudeh, that's T-U-D-E-H party, the Iranian Communist Party after the demise of the Shah, but also to put an anti-communist force on the border of the former Soviet Union. As well, the goal of this covert operation was to assure the destabilization and destruction of Jimmy Carter's political fortunes. We're going to be going back to some programs that I recorded in January of 1993 uh, on the roughly 12th anniversary of the ascension of the Reagan-Bush, the first Reagan-Bush administration. This after George H.W. Bush was leaving office in January of 1993 following his defeat by Bill Clinton. Uh, We're going to be going back, again, almost uh, the better part of a quarter of a century into the archives in from January of 1993. We will be 
visiting our interviews with Farah Mansour, a genuine hero who has placed himself at great risk. Before, however, we revisit my reading of a circular letter that was that was uh, developed by Farah Mansour, I'm going to visit a manuscript that we have in the printed description for this program. Harry Martin, formerly of the Napa Sentinel, had a publication called Free America, and in July 1st of 1995, he published an article based on Farah Mansour's documents, The Real Iranian Hostage Story from the Files of Farah Mansour. And excerpting that, with thousands of documents to support his position, Mansour says that the hostage crisis, unquote, was a political management tool created by the pro-Bush faction of the CIA and implemented through an a priori alliance with Khomeini's Islamic fundamentalists. He says the purpose was twofold, to keep Iran intact and communists free by putting Khomeini in full control, to destabilize the Carter administration, and put George Bush in the White House. Parenthetically, he became vice president under Ronald Reagan. The private alliance was the logical result of the intricate Iranian political reality of the mid-1970s and a complex network of powerful U.S.-Iranian business relationships, Mansour states. I first met Khomeini in 1963 during the failed coup attempt against the Shah. Since that time, I have been intimately involved with Iranian politics. I knew in 1979 that the whole phony Islamic revolution was, quote, mission implausible. Mansour was frank. There is simply no way that those guys with beards and turbans could have pulled off such a brilliantly planned operation without very sophisticated help. I have collected enough data to yield a very clear picture. Mr. Bush's lieutenants removed the Shah, brought Khomeini back to Iran, and guided his rise to power, sticking it to President Carter, the American people, the 52 hostages in particular, and the Iranian people. Mansour's meticulous research clearly demonstrates how Khomeini's published vision of an Islamic government, the Vilayat Fakih, V-I-L-A-Y-A-T, hyphen F-A-Q-I-H, I'm probably mispronouncing this, dovetailed with the regional and global strategic objectives of a hardcore subset of the U.S. national security establishment loyal to George Bush. It shows that the Iranian hostage crisis was neither a crisis nor chaos. In 1953, the CIA orchestrated a coup in Iran, which threw out the democratic government of Mohammad Mossadegh and installed the Shah. In order to understand the imperative of this alliance, we must realistically examine the socio-political alignment both in Iran and the U.S. and accurately assess their respective interests to find the common ground for this coalescence. The anti-monarchic forces in mid-70s Iran consisted of various nationalist groups, including religious reformists, the Islamic fundamentalists, and the leftists, and the communists. Skipping down. The Islamic fundamentalists had no government experience, but they had major grassroots support. Islam in its Shiite format 
was deeply embedded in the lives of the vast majority of the Iranian people. The fundamentalists were absolutely anti-communist. The philosophical divide within the U.S. national security establishment, especially the CIA, became quite serious in the aftermath of Watergate. To make matters worse, the election of Jimmy Carter in 1976, his campaign promise to clean the cowboy elements out of the CIA, and his human rights policies alarmed the faction of the CIA loyal to George Bush. Bush was CIA director under Gerald Ford. Finally, the firing of CIA Director George Bush by Carter and the subsequent Halloween massacre in which Carter fired over 800 veteran CIA officers in 1977 angered the Cowboys beyond all measure. That was Carter's October surprise. 800 800 firings of veteran CIA officers on Halloween of 1977. Bush and his CIA coverts were well aware of the Shah's terminal cancer, and it was unknown to President Carter. The team had an elaborate, vested interest to protect. They were determined to keep Iran intact and communist-free and put George Bush in the White House. And that uh, sort of sums up uh, the basics of this gambit again. Uh, in order to keep an anti-communist entity on the border of the former Soviet Union, the Islamic fundamentalists, in this case Shiite, were installed as part of a coup in Iran by the very same elements that had uh, basically, uh, many of the very same elements that had been involved with the 1953 coup. We're going to revisit a portion of AFA program number 38 from January of 1993. And I will, we're going to uh, revisit my reading of a circular letter that uh, was crafted by Farah Mansour. The entirety of Harry Martin's text is in the description for this show and will be for the other shows uh, that are recapping my interviews with Farah Mansour. And uh, following this, I'm going to read uh, sort of a key dramatis persona. I think with these shows, perhaps more than some of the other programs I've done, relying on the printed descriptions for the program is very important uh, because so many of these names, the Iranian names in particular, are foreign to the American linguistic palette. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. Long article-length descriptions of the For the Record programs are available at spitfirelist.com, also featuring information that wasn't in the original program due to the limitations of time. This particular circular was headlined or entitled by Farah, Crucial Information About the 1979 Iranian Hostage Crisis Ignored by the Major News Media. And uh, this four-page circular reads as follows. By the way, I'm reading this by way of observing the Reagan and Bush administrations leaving power, and it has been roughly 12 years since the hostages came home. For 13 years, the truth behind the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis has been buried in a landfill of disinformation. However, new research has finally unveiled the enigma. Weaving itself through the, quote, chaos, unquote, was an historic covert operation engineered by the Agents for Bush covert team 
in an alliance with the Islamic fundamentalists. That, quote, drama, unquote, was purposed to consolidate Khomeini's power in Iran and put Bush in the White House. The contention by Farah and his colleagues is that the October surprise, the apparent deal cut between the Reagan and Bush campaign, was not only not the most important part, but was merely an outgrowth of a much broader U.S. policy involving active CIA support for the Islamic fundamentalist forces in Iran, and that this policy is ongoing, and that, that this policy has implications far beyond either the October surprise or the Iran-Contra scandal per se. And again, I'm reading this by way of observing the Reagan and Bush administration's termination, and by way of noting that the forces that they represent, and Reagan and Bush were merely tools of more powerful forces, these forces are very much with us, they are still in power, and any would-be Democrat with a small D in the White House or elsewhere will ultimately have to contend successfully with these very powerful forces if uh, any of the political ideals that most of us believe in are to be successfully realized. It is the contention of Farah Mansour and his colleagues that, in fact, the U.S. support for the Islamic fundamentalists, of which the October surprise was an outgrowth, began in the mid-1970s when the CIA learned that the Shah of Iran, a U.S. protege, had contracted cancer and that this ultimately obviously meant that he would be leaving power. It is the contention of Farah and his colleagues that, in fact, the alliance between the CIA and George Bush and the Islamic fundamentalists began in the 70s and that when a hostile Carter administration came into power, this already established and ongoing alliance was utilized to destabilize the Carter administration as well as to continue an anti-Soviet government in Iran. The Shah, of course, was fiercely anti-Soviet, and as indicated by Farah, and, or as maintained by Farah and his colleagues, uh, the CIA and George Bush uh, actively allied themselves and supported the Islamic fundamentalist movement in order to continue to ha or to uh, see to it that there would be a continuity of anti-communism on the part of Iran in the Middle East. Farah and colleagues go on to say, Iran has long been the keystone of U.S. strategic interests in the Middle East. The Shah was put there to maintain stability. However, in 1975, Richard Helms, I would interject at that time director of the CIA, or actually, no, uh, 1975, Richard Helms was not director of the CIA. He was U.S. ambassador to Iran. William Colby was director of the CIA. However, Helms was former CIA director. However, in 1975, Richard Helms learned that the Shah had cancer. Under George Bush, the CIA used this exclusive knowledge to quietly prepare for the Shah's departure. That last sentence again, because it's a fitting, it's important as we watch George Bush leaving office. Under George Bush, the CIA used this exclusive knowledge to quietly prepare for the Shah's departure. Knowing nothing about this, President Carter instituted policies that split the intelligence community and alienated that faction of it fiercely loyal to George Bush. While Carter blindly pursued human rights, the Bush faction pursued its own private foreign policy to keep Iran intact and communist free. To that end, it privately allied itself with the Islamic fundamentalists of Khomeini. That alliance promoted the Islamic Republic of Iran and engineered the hostage crisis. That so-called crisis was a political management tool used to consolidate Khomeini's control of Iran and paved the way for George Bush to gain the White House by destabilizing President Carter. 1. The Shah of Iran was diagnosed with cancer in 1974. 2. In 1975, former CIA director 
and U.S. Ambassador Richard Helms, a close personal friend of the Shaw and an associate of George Bush, learned the secret of the Shaw's cancer. On November 4th, 1976, soon after the results of the presidential election in favor of Jimmy Carter were known, the CIA under George Bush anticipated the premature transition of power in Iran from the Shah to his successor. See note A, and I'm going to read that in a minute. Agents for Bush covert team chose the Islamic fundamentalists as the best available alternative to keep Iran intact and communist free. One of the things we're going to touch on next week is a portion of an article from Covert Action Information Bulletin Issue Number 33 entitled Agents for Bush, dealing with the very significant support inside of the intelligence community for the candidacy of George Bush in 1980 when he was challenging Ronald Reagan for the, the Republican nomination. Note A alluded to in that passage by Farah and his colleagues reads as follows. Documents indicate that CIA Director George Bush had known of the Shah's cancer by late 1976, if not earlier. A secret memo from the Director of Central Intelligence dated November 4, 1976, asked, quote, Have there been any changes in the personality patterns of the Shah? What are their implications for political behavior? Identification of top military officers that most likely play key roles in any transference of power if the Shah were killed, unquote. Another member on uh, another memo on November 4th, 1976, stated, quote, Not only do we need future reflection on what is behind the Shah's words and action, but also additional information and a field analysis is needed as to how decisions are formed and who is influential in implementing them. It is particularly important to know what subjects are withheld from the Shah and the degree to which reports to him are doctored by his subordinates. To what extent do such practices warp his perspectives, isolate him, and peril his regime? They, people at the agency, do not have adequate information and field analysis regarding his succession to the throne. What are the mechanics? Who will be the leading actors? How will the Shah's pet projects, including the economic development program, be affected by his departure? Unquote. Again, this document obtained under the Freedom of Information Act, obviously anticipating the Shah's fall. This from November 4th. Of 1976, George Bush was director of the CIA and aware at this point that Jimmy Carter would be taking over. The next section of this particular circular letter reads as follows. However, Carter's presidency split the CIA, alienating the pro-Bush covert team, most of whom Carter had fired. Recall Jimmy Carter conducted a house cleaning of sorts of the CIA and many long-term agency employees and officials, including many of the ones who later cropped up in, in uh, various aspects of the Iran-Contra scandal, were dismissed at that, uh, that point. The letter goes on. In response to Carter's lack of, quote, cooperativeness, unquote, the pro-Bush covert team then fomented the Islamic Revolution and piggybacked it onto the existing popular revolt against the Shah. This last sentence again, because it places the allegations set forth here by Farah and his colleagues, place the October surprise in a much broader context, and they maintain that that deal was not only real, but was, but, but that it was but one outgrowth of a much broader policy involving active CIA support for the Islamic fundamentalist movement in Iran, again tabbing them as the designated anti-communist successors to the Shah. The sentence reads, in response to Carter's lack of cooperativeness, cooperativeness in quotes, the pro-Bush covert team then fomented the Islamic Revolution and piggybacked it onto the existing popular revolt against the Shah. By the end of April 1978, private citizens George Bush, 
Ronald Reagan, and Margaret Thatcher were in Iran. A confidential minutes of U.S. Embassy Country Team meeting under direction of then U.S. Ambassador William Sullivan dated April 26, 1976 is noted, quote, The ambassador commented on our distinguished visitors, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Margaret Thatcher, and commented that Tehran seems to be the site for an opposition party's Congress, unquote. Again, this particular piece of research, this allegation by Farah and his colleagues, maintains that George Bush, Ronald Reagan, and Margaret Thatcher were in Iran in April of 1978, and they quote, and again they obtained documentation on this, they quote minutes of a U.S. Embassy country team as follows, quote, The ambassador commented on our distinguished visitors, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Margaret Thatcher, and commented that Tehran seems to be the site for an opposition party's Congress, unquote. The next paragraph reads, In early October of 1978, the agents for Bush covert team brought Khomeini back to Iran from a 14-year exile in Iraq, stopping off in Paris, France for a four-month Western media blitz. On February 14, 1979, two weeks after Khomeini's return to Iran, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was seized by Khomeini supporters disguised as leftist guerrillas in an attempt to neutralize the left. U.S. hostages were seized, but to the chagrin of Khomeini's fundamentalists, the Iranian coalition government restored order immediately. Recall, this was the pre-Khomeini and post-Shah government of Shapur Bakhtiar. However, that same day, Khomeini's aides supplied the embassy with a team of Iranians for compound security. Ambassador Sullivan installed, armed, and trained this, quote, SWAT squad, unquote, led by Savak slash CIA agent Mashala Kashani, that man's name, M-A-S-H-A-L-L-A-H-K-A-S-H-A-N-I. This particular paragraph generated to this information, this allegation by Farah and his colleagues, maintains that in February of 79, two weeks after Khomeini was shipped back to Iran by the CIA and Bush-allied forces, there was an abortive takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. It was conducted by Khomeini supporters disguised as leftists, and although the coalition government in Iran restored order, Khomeini's aides supplied the embassy with a team of Iranians for compound security, and that they were led, and again, this is a pro-Khomeini team, by a Savak CIA agent named Mashallah Kashani. Again, I want to emphasize that uh, I cannot vouch for many of the allegations that are contained in this circular letter, uh, some of them, many of them, agree with information or dovetail with information generated from other sources for a long time. I've seen the documentation for some of this, but again, I want to offer the caveat that I cannot vouch for, the, for uh, a good deal of what is said. This is in no way to cast aspersions on it, but rather to encourage responsible investigators to begin looking into this potentially devastating information. The next paragraph proceeds, or the next paragraph of this letter Pro-Bush CIA official George K. Visited, visited Iran from August through October 31, 1979 to provide intelligence briefings to Khomeini's aides. With all the Iranian officials who had restored order in the first embassy seizure eliminated, the stage was set for what happened next. And again, it's the contention of Farah and his uh, colleagues in the resistance that uh, the February 14th abortive seizure of the U.S. Embassy set the stage for the successful seizure in November of 79, and that uh, people put into the embassy for security. Iranians were, in fact, working not only for the Khomeini forces, but for the CIA and Savak, the Savak, the Shah's brutal secret police. This paragraph goes on to say, 
See, quote, decoded, unquote, classified cable. See note B, disclosing the role of Warren Christopher in these events. And the second uh, sub, the second footnote to that paragraph, quote, see, uh, also see the, quote, decoded, unquote, classified cable. See note C, indicating George Cave's, quote, mission, unquote. Again, the, reading, um, the reason I'm going into this circular letter and the allegations contained in it is that the national security establishment and the forces that brought Reagan and Bush to power it have not disappeared. The national security establishment is not a monolith. There are elements that support the activities described here, elements that are opposed to it. But with Warren Christopher being the Secretary of State designate, there are indications that, in fact, uh, it would be business as usual at uh, Foggy Bottom, as the State Department is known, and that, that at least according to the information presented here, Warren Christopher may have been complicit in uh, the events surrounding October surprise. Note A, provided in the circular letter, reads, Documents indicate that CIA Director George Bush had known of the Shah's cancer by late 1976, if not earlier. A secret memo from the Director of Central Intelligence, dated November 4, 1976, asked, quote, have there been any changes in the personality patterns of the Shah? What are their implications? Oh, that's Note 8. I've already read it. Excuse me. On uh, Note B, on August 2nd, 1979, Henry Precht, P-R-E-C-H-T, director of the Iran desk at the State Department, sent a cable to the U.S. Embassy team, Tehran, and the subject briefing, one, secret, entire text, two, briefing officer Robert Clayton Ames, A-I-A-M-A-M-E-S, will arrive on Air Force 168, August 21st at 10 p.m. from Paris. He will have a courier letter in order to protect briefing materials in his possession. Ames Passport Number 135101, issued June 1st, 1978, in Washington. Please meet and assist. And the third subhead to this paragraph. If feasible, suggested you contact rehearsal of briefing with Ames before going to meeting with Iranians. Christopher. That, of course, refers to a Secretary of State designate Christopher. Uh, so that's uh, Bill Clinton's incoming Secretary of State. And Note C alluded to here reads, and there are two uh, excer extracts here, Note C, on October 21st, the CIA official stationed in Tehran alerted his counterpart in Paris that the Shah's imminent arrival in the U.S. would make certain difficulties. Quote, since reference B, have learned that Amir Entezam, A-M-I-R-E-N-T-E-Z-A-M, took part in meeting which Charge and Mr. Henry Precht had with Premier Bazargan and Foreign Minister Yazdi, Y-A-Z-D-I, to pass message on to the Shah, uh, pass message on Shah stays health and imminent arrival in the United States. Amir Entezam's reaction was that this development would, would make more difficult efforts of those who have been trying to improve relations with the United States. Since Amir Entazam, fully apprised of R.N. parentheses Shah outstays plans, it may not be necessary to advise him that Mr. Cave has important intelligence for him. Please advise whether HQs still want stationed to alert Entazam that Mr. Cave wants to meet him in Europe as possible, uh, I suspect that's supposed to be as early as possible, 21st October, all secret, unquote. Note, Amir Entazam was Iran's deputy prime minister, later Iranian ambassador to Sweden. I would also note that in telephonic communication with Farah Mansour, uh, he, Mansour maintains that this past week, uh, the, the individual referred to, foreign, foreign, former foreign minister Yazdi, was in the United States for a conference at Columbia University on democracy and Islam.
And the next section of Note C reads, A CIA cable dated October 31st, 1979 from Tehran to its headquarters reveals the sensitivity of George Cave's 11th hour, quote, mission, unquote, to Iran. Quote, Proposed extension of George Cave's visit raises questions of his safety and of Amir Antizam's expressed concern about, quote, manipulation of the revolution. Knowing no more than we do here about it, his tours must defer to him and HQs, that's CIA HQs, for consideration of personal security implication of a series of operational contacts. Regarding possible political fallout, we think there are substantial risks involved and that and, and the char charge, Bruce Langan, advises that he is concerned. We assume that Cave's prolonged presence could not be concealed from the Iranians, those unaware of his secret mission on behalf of the, quote, alliance, unquote, and that no innocuous pretext such as tourism would be credible. At least some of his proposed contacts would therefore presumably have to be declared to, quote, Antizam and, and, and company Bazargan, unquote, the cable concluded. And the last section of Note C reads, quote, in order to permit evaluation of risks and benefits of these contacts, request CIA headquarters identify them for us and indicate which of them would be declared, unquote. And going on with the rest of the last paragraph of this particular circular letter, on November 4th, 1979, the U.S. Embassy was taken again. Leading the charge was none other than Ambassador Sullivan's, quote, trusty butcher, unquote, Mashallah Kashani, custodian of embassy security from February through August of 1979. That again from AFA program number 38 from January of 1993. And uh, my interviews with Farah Mansour will be excerpted in programs to come. Again, as I'm speaking on March 24th of 2016, Iran has been very much in the news lately with, uh, among other things, the nuclear deal and rapprochement. Also, Iran has been providing uh, Shiite combatants uh, in Syria, among other places, in what amounts to uh, a certain extent in a, an Islamic civil war. We, I would note in passing that, as we have discussed, in past programs, Khomeini himself and his followers were members of a Shiite branch of the Muslim Brotherhood called the Disciples of Islam. And in future broadcasts, when we discuss Khomeini's flight from Iraq to Paris, none other than Francois Genoux, uh, heir to the political last will and testament and collective literary works of Adolf Hitler, Martin Bormann, and Joseph Goebbels, and the driving force behind the creation of the Bank Al-Taqwa that had an unlimited, an account with unlimited credit for Al-Qaeda, he financed the Khomeini's stay in Paris. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. You can subscribe to the comments posted on the SpitfireList.com website, most of them by a brilliant contributing editor who uses the moniker Terra Fractal specializing, but by no means exclusively, in economic and financial matters. What I'm going to do is to excerpt some of the 
essay uh, by Harry Martin. Again, Harry Martin from his Free America blog of July 1st of 1995, The Real Iranian Hostage Story from the Files of Farah Mansour. And we're going to uh, set forth some of the key individuals and some of the relationships. One of the things that is worth noting here is how many of these key players go all the way back to the events in and around the 1953 CIA coup that ousted Mohammad Mossadegh and brought the Shah back to power. Now, Richard Helms, who was head of the CIA following Alan Dulles and then became U.S. ambassador to Iran, had gone to private school in Switzerland with not only the Shah, but General Hossein, H-O-S-S-E-I-N, Fardust, F-A-R-D-O-U-S-T. Another guy who will figure in this is General Valiola, that's V-A-L-L-I-O-L-L-A-H, Karani, Q-A-R-A-N-I. Karani was a CIA asset and had been a CIA asset in Iran since the 1953 coup. We're also going to be taking a look at the fellow named Richard Cotton, C-O-T-T-A-N. Cotton was a professor in the U.S., almost certainly at this point still working for CIA. During the 1953 coup, he had been in charge of the CIA's Iran desk. The actual overthrow of Mossadegh was overseen by Kermit Kim Roosevelt, but Richard Cotton was in charge of the CIA's Iran desk at this time, and we're going to see how these various elements network together. And we're going to take a look at some of the key dramatis personae and how they relate. First, General Hossein Fardus. And by the way, this is in the written description for the, for the record program, 896. Fardus was a key player in this drama, like Richard Cotton and General Karani, Q-A-R-A-N-I. He had been working with the CIA, Shaw, and Helms milieu for decades. It was from his longtime associate, Fardust, that Helms learned that the Shah had cancer. Again, quoting from Harry Martin's essay. In 1975, former CIA director and the U.S. ambassador to Iran, Richard Helms, learned of the Shah's cancer through the Shah's closest confidant, General Hossein Fardust. The Shah, Helms, and Fardust had been close personal friends since their school days together in Switzerland during the 1930s. Fardust then set up an incident that was central to the staging of the uprising that installed Khomeini in power. Again, quoting from Harry Martin's essay. And by the way, that essay, of course, taken from Farah Mansour's documents. On January 7th of 1978, an insidious article entitled Iran and the Red and Black Colonialism appeared in the Iranian daily newspaper Etalat, that's capital E-double-T-E-L-A hyphen A-T, or uh, apostrophe A-T. It castigated the exiled Khomeini and produced a massive protest riot in the holy city of Qum the next day, that's Q-U-M. The clergy had little choice but to rally to Khomeini's defense. The Qum incident shifted many of the clergy from a position of support for the Shah's monarchy to an active opposition. That dirty trick was perpetuated by General Fardust himself 
and was the trigger that sparked the Islamic movement participating in the anti-Shah democratic revolution. John D. Stempel, S-T-E-M-P-E-L, characterized Fadnut's importance to the alliance. It is hard to overestimate the value of having a mole in the inner circle of the Shah. After Khomeini's ascension to power, General Karami below consults with General Fardust about the personnel to fill Khomeini's cabinet. All of the recommendations, again, this is uh, General Fardust, who was one of the Shah's top aides, all of the recommendations are followed, except for the filling of the head of Savak, the Shah's secret police. Fardust, Hossein Fardust, is then appointed head of the Savama, Khomeini's version of Savak. Again, quoting from Harry Martin's essay, On February 11, 1979, in a seemingly bizarre twist, General Karani asked the Shah's eyes and ears, General Hossein Fardus, for recommendations to fill the top new posts in Iran's armed forces. Except for the recommendation for the chief of Savak, all the others were accepted. Shortly thereafter, General Fardus himself became the head of Sadama, Khomeini's successor to Savak. The next guy we're going to look at is Dr. Ibrahim Yazdi. Yazdi was in close contact with 1953 coup participant, Bush operative, and probable CIA officer Richard Cotton. In August of 1978, the Bush team sent its own point man to meet the exiled Ayatollah in Najaf. That's in Iraq. Professor Richard Cotham, C-O-T-T-A-N, carried excellent credentials. During the, 1973, during the 1953 coup, he had been in charge of the CIA's Iran desk. He had also been in close contact with Dr. Ibrahim Yazdi, Y-A-Z-D-I, in the U.S. since 1975. In September of 1978, uh, the aforementioned Ibrahim Yazdi is visited in the U.S. by Khomeini ally Ayatollah Mohammed Hussein Beheshti, B-E-H-E-S-H-T-I. Again, quoting, In mid-September of 78, at the height of the revolution, quote, one of the handful of Khomeini's trusted associates, Ayatollah Mohammed Hussein Beheshti, secretly visited the U.S. He also met with Yazdi in Texas, among others. Beheshti was an advocate of the Eye for an Eye School of Justice. In February of 1979, after Khomeini came to power, there was an abortive takeover of the U.S. Embassy by Khomeini followers posing as leftists. Yazdi uh, then connects uh, U.S. Ambassador William Sullivan with a guy named Mashallah Kashani, M-A-S-H-A-L-L-A-H, K-H-A-S-H-A-N-I, who becomes the chief of security for the compound. On February 14th, soon after order was restored at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Khomeini's aide Yazdi supplied the embassy with a group of Iranians for compound security. Ambassador Sullivan installed, armed, and trained this SWAT squad led by Savak and CIA agent Mashallah Kashani, with whom Sullivan developed a close working relationship. 
The next person is General Viola, V-A-L-O-I-O-L-L-A-H, V-A-L-O-I-O-L-L-A-H Karani, Q-A-R-A-N-I. And like General Hussein Fabius, Karani was networking with the CIA milieu since the 1953 coup that installed the Shah. In April of 1978, he advised Khomeini that the CIA was ready to remove the Shah. The same month, Khomeini's old ally from the failed 63 coup that resulted in Khomeini's arrest and a major uprising in June of 63 and his subsequent exile to Iraq, General Valiola Karani sent his emissary to meet Khomeini in Najaf. Karani had been a major CIA asset in Iran since the 1953 coup. Seeing another chance to gain power for himself, he advised Khomeini, according to former Iranian President Abul Hassan Banisarba, quote, If you settle for the Shah's departure and don't use anti-American rhetoric, the Americans are ready to take him out. And then more. Khomeini moved quickly to establish his authority. On February 5th, he named Mehdi Bazargan, a devoted Muslim and anti-communist interior prime minister. Yazdi and Abbas Amir and Tazam became Bazargan's deputies. Dr. Sanjabi, foreign minister, and General Karani was named military chief of staff. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. All of Dave Emery's 36 years of work is available for download on the SpitfireList.com website. The site includes many articles not included in the programs, as well as a small library of old anti-fascist books. All of the material on the website is available for free. Sister station WFMU is podcasting the For the Record programs. To subscribe to the podcast, use the link at the top of the description for this program or on the front page. Again, uh, General Valiola Karani, who had been a major CIA asset in Iran since the 53 coup, uh, counsels Khomeini that if you settle for the Shah's departure and don't use anti-American rhetoric, the Americans are ready to take the Shah out. Then, Karani was appointed chief of staff of the army under Khomeini. Again, quoting from uh, Farah's documents and Harry Martin's essay, Khomeini moved quickly to establish his authority. On February 5th, he named Mehdi Bazargan, a devoted Muslim and anti-communist interim prime minister. Yazdi and Abbas Amir Entazam became Bazargan's deputies. Dr. Sanjabi, foreign minister, and General Karani was named military chief of staff. The next guy is Mashallah Kashani, M-A-S-H-A-L-L-A-H, last name K-H-A-S-H-A-N-I. Mashallah Kashani was both a Savak and CIA agent who was installed by Khomeini aide Dr. Ibrahim Yazdi, about whom we've already spoken, as chief of security for the compound after an abortive takeover of the embassy in February of 1979. On February 14th, soon after order was restored at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Khomeini's aide Yazdi supplied the embassy with a group of Iranians for compound security. Ambassador Sullivan installed, armed, and trained this SWAT squad led by Sadak CIA agent Mashallah Kashani, with whom Sullivan developed a close working relationship. On November 4, 1979, the U.S. Embassy was taken again. Leading the charge was none other than Ambassador Sullivan's trusted Mashallah Kashani, the embassy's once 
and former security chief. And again, Khashoggi had been appointed as uh, supposedly the man to guard the security here. Next is Ayatollah Mohammed Hossein Beheshti. In July of 77, a CIA analysis identifies Beheshti as one of the major players in any scenario by following the removal of the Shah. By July of 1977, anticipating trouble ahead, the Bush covert team issued the preliminary script for the transition of power in Iran. According to John D. Stemple, a CIA analyst and deputy chief political officer of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, a 10-page analysis of the opposition written by the embassy's political section in July of 1977 correctly identified Bakhtiar, Bazagan, Khomeini, and Beheshti as major actors in the drama that begins unfolding a year later. Then in mid-September of 78, Beheshti visits Jazdi in the U.S. In mid-September, at the height of the revolution, one of the handful of Khomeini's trusted associates, Ayatollah Mohammed Hussein Beheshti, secretly visited the U.S. He also met with Yazdi in Texas, among others. Then Richard Coffin. Uh, he was a professor, in all likelihood a CIA operative, as he was during the 1953 coup that ousted Mossadegh and reinstalled the Shah. In August, the Bush team sent its own point man to meet the exiled Ayatollah in Najaf. Professor Richard Cotham carried excellent credentials. During the 1953 coup, he had been in charge of the CIA's Iran desk. He had also been in close contact with Dr. Ibrahim Yazdi in the U.S. since 1975. Curiously, he admitted to Bani Sagar in 1987 that he had not been working for the Carter administration. Cotham's visit must have had an impact because Iran suddenly began to experience a series of mysterious catastrophes. And uh, Cotham tried to arrange a meeting between Carter's security aide, Gary Sick, and Khomeini's representative in the U.S., Dr. Ibrahim Yazdi. A few days later, Carter's national security aide, Gary Sick, received a call from Richard Cotham requesting a discreet meeting between him and Khomeini's representative in the U.S., Dr. Yazdi. Sick refused. Then Cotham requested Gary Sick that the Carter administration facilitate the transit of Khomeini from Iraq. October 3, 1978, Yazdi picked up Khomeini in Iraq and headed for Kuwait. According to Gary Sick, he received an urgent call from Richard Cotham, learning for the first time that Khomeini had been forced out of Iraq. Sick was told that Khomeini and his entourage were stuck in no man's land while attempting to cross the border. Cotham was requesting White House intervention to resolve the issue. Sick responded, there is nothing we can do. Then in December of 78, Cotham visits Khomeini in Paris, noting that Ibrahim Yazdi, about whom we've already spoken, functioned as the Ayatollah's apparent chief of staff. December 28th of 78, Cotham visited Khomeini in Paris, where he noted that U.S. citizen Dr. Yazdi was the leading tactician in Khomeini's camp and the parent chief of staff. Then in January of 1979, Cotham goes to Tehran to prepare for Khomeini's return and installation. Leaving Paris, Cotham slipped into Tehran 
arriving the first week in January of 1979 to prepare Khomeini's triumphal return to Iran. So again, looking at how the various dramatis personae here network together is more than a little revealing. And many of them, such as Hossein Fardus, General Karani, and Richard Cotton, also track back uh, to the 1953 coup. Uh, and in the case of Hossein uh, Fardus, even before that. Now, I can appreciate that this is a very uh, tangled web indeed for people to follow. We are going to be uh, excerpting my interviews from 1993 with Farah Mansour. Again, the entire text of the document by Harry Martin from his Free America, the real Iranian hostage story from the files of Farah Mansour, is in the description for this program and will be in the descriptions for the other shows as well. This particular program will be particularly important for people to avail themselves of the written description. This is a tangled web, and again, many of these names not only aren't exactly household words, but in fact, uh, they are alien to the American linguistic palette, certainly the ones that uh, are Iranian names as well. Again, I'm doing this for some perspective, not only on the development of the Iranian fundamentalist Shiite government, which was installed by the U.S., by a by the George Bush faction of the CIA. Uh, it was installed as an anti-communist bulwark, both against the Tudeh, uh, the T-U-D-E-H party in Iran, and against the former Soviet Union. This is an indication of... Uh, the old phrase, oh, what tangled webs we weave when we practice to deceive. I think it also gives us some perspective on the recent bloodshed in Brussels, where once again the Sunni Shiite, uh, excuse me, the Sunni Islamic fundamentalists grouped around the Muslim Brotherhood and its offshoots like ISIS, the Al Nusra Front slash Al Qaeda in Iraq, and others. Uh, are being used as proxy warriors for operations against Syria, as well as being used in the Caucasus against Russia, and related elements in China against the Chinese government as well. And we will be uh, dealing with this at greater length in weeks to come. By way of looking ahead to our future programs, uh, a little bit of a teaser here. Look who is present in Iran in April of 1978, uh, well over a year before the hostages are taken uh, that resulted in the hostage crisis and the destabilization of Jimmy Carter. Again, from the real Iranian hostage story from the files of Farah Mansour by Harry Martin, July 1st, 1995. Mansour produced a confidential document called The Country Team Minutes of April 26th of 1978, more than a year before the hostage crisis itself. The meeting was held 
in Iran. The second paragraph of the routine minutes states, quote, The ambassador, William Sullivan, commented on our distinguished visitors, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Margaret Thatcher, and commented that Tehran seems to be the site for an opposition party's Congress, unquote. Mansour indicates the entire relationship was probably the most sophisticated criminal act in recent history, again quoting, that the people who until recently were holding power in Washington and those who currently are still in control in Tehran got there by totally subverting the democratic process of both countries is news. That their methods of subversion relied on kidnapping, extortion, and murder is criminal, Mansour states, and we will go into this at greater length in our next program. This concludes for the record program number 896, Farah Mansour on the Deep October Surprise Part 1. This is being recorded on March 24th of the year 2016. I'm Dave Emery. Thanks for listening.